Be Wealthy and Smart, episode 181. into a world of wealth and financial freedom without budgets, boredom, or bosses on Be Wealthy and Smart. And now, here's your host, Linda P. Jones. Welcome to Be Wealthy and Smart. I'm Linda P. Jones, America's Wealth Mentor, empowering women and men worldwide to financial freedom. Have you heard the Creating Wealth podcast yet with Jason Hartman? There's over 700 amazing podcasts about real estate. If you like this podcast, you'll like that one too. I'm very excited to have Richard C. Wilson on the show. Richard is the author of How to Start a Family Office, Blueprints for Setting Up Your Single Family Office. And I love what he talks about. Today, we're going to chat about the top seven investment strategies of centimillionaires, those people who have over $100 million and how they got that way and how you can apply it yourself. Here we go. I want to welcome back to the show, Richard C. Wilson. Richard, it's a pleasure to have you back again. Thank you, Linda, for having me. I'm so excited. We had a a lot of good feedback after you were on the first time and we were talking about billionaires and family offices. And today we're going to talk about the top seven investment strategies of centimillionaires, because I think people are really curious how are the wealthy making their money? And what ideas do you have for the everyday person who can get started on their path to wealth? Awesome. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I think it's going to be just a natural conversation of like what keeps my work exciting because, you know, I'm not a centimillionaire or a billionaire, but looking at what they're doing inside their portfolio uh, just keeps me on my toes every day and makes me want to, you know, run our holdings in a more effective way. Well, and like Tony Robbins says, success leaves clues, so we can learn from other people and see what they're doing and and follow their success. Right. Yeah, exactly. Big believer of that. Okay, so let's get started with number one. What's the number one investment strategy of a centimillionaire? Uh, I find that as often as they can, they want to own the game instead of being a player in somebody else's game. So they want to be earning fees, not on the side of the table where they're paying the fees. And it might sound obvious who wouldn't want to earn fees instead of pay them. But a lot of self-made $100 million plus net worth individuals, centimillionaires, don't really want to go in as a generic LP in somebody else's real estate fund too often. They might sometimes, uh, and maybe a multi-generational family would, but a first-generation self-made person, they're used to control. So they might want to invest but they might want 50% equity in that investment fund and be able to help in raising more capital and actually earn fees off of institutional LP investors, et cetera. So whatever the investment niche is, I've just found that the centimillionaires like to figure out how they can own the game and be a co-GP investor or an equity uh, player in the game rather than someone who's just being charged fees and just taking the abuse you know, fee-wise. Mm-hmm. So it's really about that equity stake and having some control and being able to call the shots. Right. And the one thing that resonates through all seven of these strategies here today is that centimillionaires you know, that I work with, 13 out of our 14 clients, uh, they're at that level or beyond, are all self-made. And so 
people don't go through their life having control, getting great success through control, and just battling, you know, lawsuits and blackmail from past employees when they did nothing wrong, et cetera, to then when they get to, you know, the top of the mountain of where they're at yet, um, to then be like, oh, well, I'll just, let's just give away control. I'll invest money in these mutual funds and other people's funds, and I hope they do a good job. I, I hope they're smart guys. You know, most of the time, for most of their investments, they're going to want some level of control and transparency, and that, that comes out in all of these different seven strategies here. But they had to become an expert in order to have that control. Like, they didn't just wake up one morning and say, I'm going to be an owner. So they had to work for probably many years to become an expert at something to be able to demand equity and and control, Right. Right. Like a lot of them, you know, had to develop their, their unique ability and it might've started in one thing, which led to, you know, familiarity with the whole niche industry, such as media or online, you know, lead generation or manufacturing. And then, you know, it might have several areas of strength, uh, by the time they get to being worth a hundred million dollars for sure they do. But, uh, but yeah, you're right. Obviously it, it's real skill. that has been developed over 30,000, 50,000 hours of work, but also, their ability to learn a new game and know the rules of a game and the rules of business and the rules of negotiation. They just feel like putting their capital at risk and somebody else's, you know, balance sheet or responsibility set. Um, with that, they want to have control that comes with it. Otherwise, they'll just go elsewhere because there's plenty of games to play in front of them. I think a misnomer is that people think that there's, you know, all this new technology and people are just falling into some, you know, the next Uber or something idea. But I think that the demographics show what the average is over age 50. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, almost all of, I mean, the majority of centimillionaires are over age 50, obviously in Silicon Valley and in some places in Asia, you know, with, you know, second generation families that you get younger uh, but starting at age 45 and, and up is really a big break point. And most, most people are, you know, 55, 65, uh, and up range when you look at the billionaire statistics, especially. Yeah. So it, it just shows that they're having a level of experience that, uh, in, in some aspect of their career and then possibly, you know, then saying, I want to be an owner or taking control or taking control throughout, uh, probably is a good habit for people to do as well. Right. Yeah, for sure. I think to get that momentum to be worth $10 million or $100 million, you had to be typically on the cap table of your own business or a partner in a business or in some way earning equity or uh, earnings on a percentage basis, not you know being paid hourly or on salary, obviously. You had to be the founder of something or the, uh, the equity holder of something big that sold or went public. Yeah, totally makes sense. Okay, what is our second investment strategy? Uh, the second one I like to call uh, alpha male instead of blackmail. So essentially, you know, you think of blackmail as this evil, unethical thing of saying like, "Hey, I've got this, you know, embarrassing picture of you or this thing you did back in 1997, and I'm going to go to the Wall Street Journal with it if you don't pay me off $100,000." And this happens to wealthy families quite often, whether it's a legitimate claim or picture or whatever or not. But you know, the bright side of it though is those same people get and they play up the strategy of alpha male, which is basically showing that you are the titan in an industry and playing that up, um, you know, to an extreme, obviously Donald Trump has done that with licensing deals, but you know, Mark Cuban is very public. You know, anyone that's on Shark Tank has been playing that up, but to be defined as the head of your niche industry, even if it's just regionally or in one, one city such as New York or San Francisco or Chicago is going to bring to you deal flow that others will never see otherwise. And I just see that 
a lot of centimillionaires use this strategy uh, to see deals first and more often and just get better terms than people would otherwise because people want to work with the Mark Cuban rather than the private equity fund or rather than a, a venture capital fund or some investor they've never heard about before. So I think that the way that you can play this up, though, if you're not worth a lot already is through thought leadership and positioning and communicating your expertise. A lot of people only share their expertise with their closest clients, but you know what sells a lot of you know records on the radio, you know old school terms or you know uh, downloads on iTunes is really letting the world know about you know your best work. And so I think that building up a a funnel, a thought leadership funnel for a traditional business or an investor funnel, marketing funnel uh, for an investment related business is how you can do that. And it just positions yourself as a high level of credibility and expertise if you're not able to position yourself as like the number one investor for your niche. And they both result in excellent deal flow and better terms of deals. And we've seen that in our business. We've seen our clients use this strategy as well. Interesting. Well, the first thing that struck me is is when you said that billionaires face blackmail quite often. I guess I didn't realize that that was a common thing that happened. Yeah, it's very common. I, I think that you know, I've got one client that's been blackmailed 12 times, and he's the most honest, hardworking guy. He's hard-driving, and you know, um, he's very direct, but uh, you know, it happens again and again to these families, but nobody wants to talk about it, of course, because it just makes you wonder, oh, what did you get blackmailed about? And it's just not a very fun topic and not something that you want to, you know, bring up publicly, but it happens all the time. Isn't that interesting? I didn't realize that. All right. So as opposed to that, you're saying alpha male bringing, being an expert in something and bringing your best work forward. Right. And positioning yourself, I guess, like um, with wealth, it's easier to position yourself, but you can do it with thought leadership and in deciding what sandbox you want to play in with your branding and your firm name. Uh, and it attracts opportunities to you. And the whole, the whole theory here, which I've seen play out, is that you know if you look at a thousand investment ideas a year and you look at the outliers, like three, four standard deviations away from the, the average quality deal, and you look at your top 1% of deals, they're going to be much better quality than if you only look at 100 deals a year. Your top 1% is one deal. you know. So you have one option if you're only going after the top 1%. So if you can get the volume of high-quality deals really going up, then you can get those deals where other investors aren't fighting for it. You really have uh, you know, great valuation on companies. And by being a thought leader, you're attracting those deals to you. We've talked about that before where, for example, you writing a book attracted people to come to you about family offices because you're the expert on family offices. Right, right, exactly. Yeah, and we've done this for single-family offices. Like one of ours is called the uh, the Miami Family Office. And uh, we want to catch that, that deal flow when people are traveling and get access to more deals. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Okay, what's the third investment strategy? Uh, the third one is to create a niche monopoly. Like Peter Thiel says in his book, Zero to One, you know, the goal of every business is pretty much to have monopoly-like pricing power and leverage, uh, kind of like Google does. And the reason that businesses fail is when they fail to achieve monopoly you know, pricing power. And so having niche monopolies is what a lot of families do. They'll focus on a single geographical area and they'll control all the real estate in the space and maybe they will they'll buy something immediately as it comes on the market and if they do want to resell it maybe they'll mark it up a little bit and resell it 
or they'll just hold on to that and strategically use these assets with each other. And uh, what I've seen most often is that once somebody starts getting to five, ten million a year in revenue, um, that they're able to really push the gas, you know, on the strategy. And they're like, okay, yeah, it's easy. You have a lot of money. You start buying up your competitors. You know, great. You know, how am I going to apply this if I'm, you know, 25 year old in your studio apartment in Manhattan right now? I think that, you know, you can use a strategy by identifying a up and coming, you know sandbox that's going to be growing, a place that you can compete in that's going to become uh, very valuable turf long term, and then figure out all the different ways where you could be helping the big players in the space and building an operating business for two in the space that's related to investment management. So it could be a niche real estate area that you see really growing in valuation. Maybe you you know came to New York uh, from somewhere in Europe or somewhere in you know the Middle East, and you're early on a trend of you know getting ahead on that area of commercial real estate, and you could develop a you know Harvard Alumni Association club you know focused on real estate in that area, and you could work with the most active brokers in the area or become an equity partner perhaps in a small brokerage shop focused on that niche area, just start building upon the layers of penetration you have there that other people don't because of your laser focus. So the whole point of a niche monopoly is just to look at a larger area that could all be valuable ideas to focus on, but find a laser-focused area that it's your DNA the best, and then apply all different ways to dominating that small little niche so that eventually you can monopolize that and just be known as kind of the person in that niche that people go to first and are, are known of. And um, we see families do this with hard assets uh, and real estate uh, manufacturing in uh, many different areas. And I think it's like a, a fun strategy to try to apply. Yeah, and it goes, you know, beyond geographics because we can talk about uh, any kind of business having that wide moat that uh, that Warren Buffett talks about. You know, and even mm-hmm. on Shark Tank, they talk about uh, well, can this easily be copied, or do you have, you know, any kind of uh, patent on this? You know, I remember someone came in with a T-shirt and they had some clever saying and they're like, well, anyone could put that clever saying on a T-shirt. So you really don't have any (laughs) monopoly over that. And so that thought process of what kind of monopoly area can you dominate, whether it's a T-shirt or whether it's a geographical area or whether it's, you know, a niche of some kind. I think that that line of thinking is really valuable. Right, for sure. Like, uh, you know, like we are talking about centimillionaires. You know, we went out and bought centimillionaires.com. You know, we, we saw there was n- not much being provided in the single family office space. Um, so we, we provide an annual summit on single family offices and wrote, wrote a book on it and have a podcast and everything else. And so we, uh, we see the benefits of folding this out, even though, like I said before, we're not one of these families. And with all of these strategies, I just find that they build on each other to create a lot of momentum. And they have, you know, sometimes an exponential return uh, curve instead of just a linear. It's not like one plus one plus one. It, it really adds up a lot faster than that once you start using many of these strategies together. And that's why, you know, a few of these are different sides of the same coin uh, because I think that all of these can be woven together. It's not like choosing one of these seven strategies for me. It's about using all of them at Wilson Holding Company between the Family Office Club to our consumer product business that we just invested in. Um, about two months ago now, uh, to, you know, our conference and training and data businesses, like getting them to all work together and weaving all seven of these strategies together, I think is what really adds the, uh, a lot of power to it. 
Well, and the fact that you're able to take these strategies and apply them in your own business is super powerful. Right, but also it is uh, you know very low cost to use a lot of these strategies, and uh, many times it's just a thinking about how do you work on your business and think at scale on a bigger level and on a competitive level of looking at your industry like a geographical map and how do you lock up distribution or relationships or, or access or exposure and positioning on that geographical map that you've laid out that you've decided you're going to compete in, I think is like the big strategic difference in approaching things this way versus saying, oh, we run family office conferences. So that's what we're going to do. We're just going to become great at that because everyone tells me I need to focus. You know, like Gary Vaynerchuk says, like there's nothing wrong with being multidimensional and it can be a real strength. And like Dan Kennedy always says, the worst number in business is one. Because uh, if you have one source of customers or one source of profits, it could mean death one day if the industry changes or a big competitor comes in. And we squarely believe in that. So we'd rather have a more sustainable, complex business where our competitors don't even know where our profits are coming from. And uh, it makes it more strategically fun to manage and, and grow over time. Are you a believer in networking and working with other people within the group? Or are you more just being on your own and, and developing your own brand? Um, I think with networking, you have to be uh, careful. I believe in networking, but if you, if you get, I don't want to say this, it makes it sound like, uh, I'm too much of an expert in something I'm not, but like we've gotten more and more exposure for our brand through podcasts like this and through our conferences. And I think the reality is if you get really good at running a podcast or conferences and media, and you're used to getting like on uh, Tuesday, two weeks ago, we got a thousand emails in one day and that happens at least once a month, and we get like 400, 700 emails every day coming in. And you know, I was in Mumbai and New Delhi uh, last week in India speaking, and I was in Malaysia and Kuala Lumpur last year. And people there know our know our brand. And when you get used to being able to go to an event, and then people already know what you do, and they come to you with an idea that's already relevant to that, and they're like proposing an idea and they put thought into it, you get spoiled by that in a good way. You should be spoiled by that. And so it's very rough, I think, networking if you don't have a strong position where at least if you meet someone cold and you tell them what you do in one sentence, it's so unique and such a high value proposition that they do want to learn more and they kind of understand the benefits of it from that one sentence of what you said. And if you don't at least have that going for you, it's very painful to network. And if you don't have a funnel working for you and attracting people to you, you know, once a month, once a week, once a day, once an hour, it's pretty painful networking, going out and say, oh, what do you do? Oh, I sell, I sell auto insurance. Say, oh, okay, great. Well, you know, should we have small talk or just go our separate ways now, you know, and be slightly rude to each other? It can be very frustrating. So I don't know. The word networking is like a big loaded word. And I, I'm actually, uh, you know, uh, against, you know, just cold networking. I think you need to have some sort of exposure or preconception of uh, what's going on and how you're positioning against the, the people in the room if you're going to do like traditional networking. I like that philosophy of yours. All right, what is number four? Uh, number four is just to work on building a full chessboard portfolio. So this would be similar to, you know, like you brought up Warren Buffett. You know, um, he would have, you know, an insurance company or multiple insurance companies that would have something called float, you know, capital available to invest elsewhere and to be able to buy other companies. And because he would only buy companies that, he felt, you know, at the beginning were cigar butts or eventually just were great companies at a really big brand value like Coca-Cola. Um, then he got great momentum out of those too. It wasn't just throwing money or darts at the walls. People, you know, uh, sometimes accuse stock investors of. And so 
the the point of that is that a insurance company or portfolio might act a lot different than a consumer products company. And what you you want to have is some very simple things in your business that just produce cash and they just move forward. Um, you might have a couple of those just by accident or by design because they're just good cash producers, just small cash cows. But then you also want some some horse and some rooks and you know a queen on your board that helps you do many different things, helps you move in many different directions based on what you need in the business. So in our business, you know one of our core assets besides media, you know resources like a book is um, our conference business. Like we get a, a triple ROI off of that. We get cash flow. Uh, it's profitable business. We get deal flow. We see a ton of deals we wouldn't see otherwise. And then we get relationship flow, uh, both with clients for our core business, as well as our single family office clients that we serve, which are the most fun for us to work with, the actual centimillionaires. And if you, when you can have you know, five different flavors or seven different flavors of businesses going on in your portfolio, then you can afford for them to work with you in different ways to the extent where maybe one doesn't even make you much money. It's just strategic. Uh, or maybe one takes five years to make any money, but you just don't care because once it does, it could quickly become a seven-figure business. And I think this could be hard for some people to, to work with when they're starting out small, but um, we're doing it in a small way right now. We, we know that there's an area in the consumer products niche, uh, a niche in consumer products that is going to grow you know, very quickly over the long term. It's a rising tide. And um, we have found through looking at about 3,000 companies, about 370 of them actually, that we've uh, reached out to about whether they'd want to sell their business. Uh, And we're doing this because we want to help our single-family office clients get into these businesses and then help manage those assets with the single-family offices we manage. And what we found is that some of the family offices are unsure about the strategy because it's a new growing area. And um, so what we've done is said, well, you know, we believe in it so much, we're just going to take this first investment and do it ourselves on a small level and invest in this company. we got a 33% equity stake and a 12.5% gross revenue royalty each month. And we're just going to grow that business and close one of those deals maybe once a year or once every six months. And the reason I bring it up is that it brings so many synergies to the forefront. Um, on the one hand, it helps Wilson Holding Company look more family office-esque. You know, it brings credibility to us so we can have a, a complex conversation with a centimillionaire and talk about our holdings and how we have them interact with each other, and that just builds our credibility with, with family offices. Two, most importantly, it builds our conviction in the space as we get this first investment profitable, and it allows us to say with a very high degree of certainty uh, compared to before, to the family offices that might invest in these 370 companies we've identified and, and narrowed down to about eight that we think are, are really investable. It allows us to go to them and say, look, we're confident in it. We'll put a little bit of our, our money in the deal alongside you. And by the way, to show you we're serious about this, we did our first deal just by ourselves, 100% our own capital. And maybe our second one we'll just do by ourselves as well from the royalties from the first deal. And the other benefit that is kind of hidden in there is that reaching out to these CEOs of consumer product companies, you know, they might not even reply to an email unless you're very careful about what you say. You have to appear credible and not going to waste their time, not going to jerk them around. You're focused on their area. You're going to give them a decent valuation, perhaps. And the more that we can show, hey, we just closed a deal, we closed our second deal in the space, the more that these CEOs will get a better hit rate on them responding to our messages. And so just in that one consumer products deal, we have all those synergies going on, um, not to mention it's a profitable business and has, has grown since we made our investment by 20%. Um, and so I think that thinking that way, like how do you do things which as often as possible 
have the benefit of increasing credibility, investment prospects for the future, deal flow prospects, and cash flow and knowledge in that niche, I think is just a good screening process um, for saying yes or no to opportunities that are in front of you. Well, you really surprised me by saying consumer products, and I don't know if you don't want to go into detail about what that is, but I was really surprised because I was thinking one of your first deals might be more toward real estate or something like that, and then you know, growing that and then bringing partners in uh, later in that. So I was a little surprised to hear consumer products. Why consumer products? I mean, you said you think it's a fast-growing area and there's a, a particular opportunity there, but is it a technology-related type thing or...? Um, so essentially, there is a uh, there's an eight block area in the city of Miami we have identified that we would love to be investing in, and we want to take the same model and uh, just invest ourselves in it for several years. But we're so late in the real estate cycle, uh, we think it's a great idea with bad timing, and that opportunity will always be there. So I think you're right. If we were a different part in the cycle, we'd be uh, building out our real estate side faster. But we're just holding off just so we can, you know, look smarter when when things go down in prices again. Um, but in the consumer product area, um, we've just found that a lot of families make their wealth in um, either food and beverage, um, you know, hard consumer product items, you know, stuff that like Damon John would get involved in, um, or in you know manufacturing, uh, you know, related. Products and what we found is that families need to be able to relate to something before they're going to want to invest in it. And if family, if someone can't understand what you're doing, like oh, we invest in warehouses, and you know we are basically selling to logistics companies, and then they're leasing back to us the warehouse, and you have these com- complex terms, and you've securitized it. You know, you just start confusing everybody, and then you you don't get many single family houses on board on wanting to invest. And so we've also found that. Just like apartment buildings in real estate or self-storage in real estate is simple to understand. We've found that consumer products can be digested mentally by a lot of the smart, you know, centimillionaire and billionaire clients we have, and we like that appeal. And then uh, we've just found, you know, a niche in there that um, perhaps after we get like our fifth or sixth or seventh deal done, you know, we'll be more public about it. But right now, you know, we want to get a uh, multi-year kind of head start jump on on some of the. Uh, the competitors that could come in there investment-wise and throw dollars against the same strategy that we're doing. Mm-hmm. Well, I have seen that pattern of uh, beverage companies buy up these more organic beverages, healthy beverages, um, you know, healthy um, flavors that you squirt into water, uh, certainly waters. I mean, there's all these different right. strategies of beverages now, which is really interesting that um, it's coming into this next generation away from soft drinks and into this whole healthy beverage and different types of waters. Uh, so I, I kind of get what you're talking about there. I mean, not that that's your consumer product. Yeah, but for I just, sure. I just have seen that in in general. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of money flowing into that. Right, and that's a good example of multiple um, like multiple trends going on at once. You know, the trend of drinking something with less sugar or drinking something that's organic or something that's more portable or something that's uh, you know, made in the USA or you know, fair trade isn't so hot of a thing right now. But there's all these different trends going on. Anytime you can line up like three or four different trends in one you know, investment focus area, obviously it helps rather than fighting against a current. Mm-hmm, Absolutely. Okay, what's number five? Uh, number five is a leveraged resource uh, strategy. Um, and basically, 
best example of this is, you know, I first heard it uh, when I was in Berlin. There was a London-based family doing this in Africa where essentially they were getting surveying equipment, uh, geological like surveying for mineral rights, and it'd be very expensive to do this typically. So if somebody was a landowner, they might not be very wealthy yet, but they might be sitting on, you know, literally a gold mine or they might not be. Um, and trying to figure out who they should sell the mineral rights to, is it natural gas or is it literally gold, um, is complex. And then many times they get taken advantage of in deals. And so surveying their land first can really improve the quality of it. And some investors will go out and buy massive tracts of land and they'll want it surveyed. But those investors might be guys worth $10 million or $20 million, and they might still not be that well capitalized. And so the surveying can be so expensive, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars, um, that essentially one family said, well, we're going to go out and buy the surveying equipment for around a million dollars, and then we're going to charge people just the price of our airline pilot and the gas, or if they wanted to, they could charge nothing, but essentially charge a little bit of something so that they don't get their time wasted, um, and then see what the proposal is from the landowner, and then any mineral rights found from a sale post-analysis of the land they get a percentage of those mineral rights derived, you know, if a deal is struck X number of years after their geological survey. So essentially, they made one investment, um, you know, for a million dollars, and then could pick up equity interests in dozens of mineral rights as a result. And it's a way, you know, the, the thinking here is how do you invest in one thing, and then you milk that cow over and over and over and over again? Or another way to look at it is how do you invest in one thing, that other people uh, would like or want, and you can leverage that into getting equity stakes or retainer clients or um, or deals done um, in some way. And and so it, it's basically just thinking about what resource in your industry can you do it do it with. And it's um you know this strategy number five is very closely related to strategy number seven. Um, so I'll just kind of I'll just jump right bridge right sure. into that like okay. real quick, but. Basically, in a book um, called Mastering the Rockefeller Habits, um, which came out with a new version called Scaling Up by Vern Harnish, who's one of the founders of EO, he talks about choke points and how in every industry there are things where it controls the speed of your growth and it might be something very frustrating to you. Well, chances are a lot of your competitors probably are slowed down by that same thing. Um, and the more you can identify what the choke points are in your space and then control them one by one, starting with the least expensive or the one that's easiest to gain control of, even if it means, okay, you control quote unquote half of that choke point, there's room for another one or two competitors, but it's a strategic advantage to have that out there. Then that could be momentum you build upon. And it's like building bricks of intellectual property or of businesses you're operating, um, or reputation in a niche area or industry, like building up a niche monopoly type business, that could be a monopoly, uh, or it could be a, a choke point um, to get something done. It's kind of like owning a toll booth. Um, you know, here in Key Biscayne, you know, I live on this island where there's one toll booth. And if you own that toll booth, then no one can come on to Key Biscayne unless they pay through your toll booth. And it's an example of a, a choke point. Like you're just getting those payments over and over and over again. And I think that a lot of families I know of think that way about business and they'll think very long-term about that. Like, oh, okay, well, I'm going to get all these equity stake opportunities. I can't really calculate the return on that, but I know it's at least going to pay for itself. And it's called this upside open-ended opportunity that I know I'm good at executing on based on my team's 
you know, history and DNA. So this is really a low risk investment because worst case, I just sell it for the uh, the low cash flows it produces, but it has all this potential upside to monetize. And I think that the difference between a leveraged resource strategy and choke points is that with a leveraged resource strategy, it's literally you know one thing that you can leverage into multiple equity stakes um, or retainers. Whereas a choke point, um, I see as something very iterative and strategic, and it might not be uh, something you even have to pay for. It could just be positioning your growing, reputation you're growing, and it's a constant game of identifying you know that that next choke point along the way. So it's kind of like a, a mindset of always just being aware of the bottlenecks in the businesses you're in that you know everyone else is facing and uh, trying to gain control over those. Okay, those are pretty straightforward. How about number six? Sure. Number six that we uh, you know skipped past was just uh, horse trading. Um, so I did a recording when I was with my EO forum in Nashville last year about how all family offices are corrupt. And the reason you know, I said that was just to get people's attention that the word corrupt is used so often in the media and thrown at so many, you know, especially politicians, but you know, um, sometimes athletes, sometimes uh, business professionals, lots of times business professionals. And I just think that many times people are calling others corrupt for playing a game they can't play and they don't feel like it's fair because it's not a balanced, even game. You know, the pedestrian walking down the street working at McDonald's can't barter resources like a billionaire can with another billionaire. So they say, oh, how corrupt. The only reason they get access to that is because they're already rich or because they you know, own the Hawks or, or something like that. And so the point here is to do as much horse trading and bartering of resources and access as possible because there's a whole economy in doing that um, and, not, and not be bothered by and have a thick skin about other people not explicitly calling you corrupt, but just not worrying about that perception of it and taking it seriously as a strategy of how do you leverage, for example, if we have a, a fa- our family office club has a thousand registered family offices in it. So, you know, before we hosted our own events, we would just speak at other people's events and they would fly me to places like uh, Brussels or Cayman Islands or Moscow to speak and we'd get free exposure in front of hundreds of people in their audience uh, for our brand leveraging over and over again, you know, horse trading the access of, okay, we have our LinkedIn group, our email list, our community will provide access to your conference. If you will provide access to, you know, um, your resource will or horse trade that exposure to our audience for your audience. And by doing that, you know, both of us are out less cash. We both get a strategic benefit that the other needed. And the more that you can think about, okay, this one asset is producing money for us, but we're trying to go from X to Y, who along the way could help us or seize us as their choke point, and just horse trading along the way to get access to talent or get access to um, you know exposure in a publication, um, I think is a way that a lot of business gets done. And I don't know if I articulated it you know quite right before, but I don't think many people are afraid of other people calling them corrupt. I just think that People underestimate how powerful this can be and how often centimillionaires and billionaires are doing this. Like they are providing access to research and deal flow and co-investment opportunities and doing things where like they make a proposal to the other person. They'll say, well, we'll pay for this because we know that this is the market price. But to de-risk the, the chance that you're going to say no, we'll also give you strategic access to A, B, and C. And we know nobody else is offering you that. So please just say yes and let's have fun working together. And they try to make like um, 
these strategic offers that are just amazing value because of the depth of holdings of the family and because of them just thinking strategically about what the other party wants. And I think that the more you can architect a conversation to do that um, and figure out how to horse trade with your so-called competitors or other people that are in your space kind of horizontally or vertically, I think is beneficial. And I never knew that this was such a common business strategy until I started working with family offices because none of these things here they really teach you about in school. You might learn that monopolies and uh, are bad because of antitrust rules. Right. Um, but none of these other stuff like came up in my MBA or my undergrad. Um, so I think it's you know fun to talk about them um, because of that fact. Richard, are these? This is a new book that you're working on. Is that right? Uh, yes, the new book is just going to be uh, simply called Capital Raising, and we just have like a you know a five step uh, system in there for. Like, kind of like the proven way that we have found how to raise capital and get deals done. Okay, and it, and it will review these steps, or where where can people find out more about these seven steps? Um, we actually have them on uh, familyoffices.com. We have a ebook there that has these steps included, and we also have um, our Family Office podcast as well. We, we go over this in a couple different episodes on our podcast there. Okay. All right, fantastic. Thank yeah. you so much. This has been incredible. You gave me lots of things to think about in terms of my brand as well, and I know everyone listening got a lot from this, so thank you again for being on the show. Sure. Thanks for having me, Linda. My Take pleasure. care. Richard had some dynamite advice again. I think working with billionaires has made him uh, really understand these strategies, really follow these strategies in his own business. And it's so exciting to have someone like him share those strategies with us because no matter where you are, if you are in a studio apartment in Manhattan or if you are a professional with a high-tech company or your own business it doesn't matter. These strategies aren't the things that you're going to learn in MBA school. They are the things that are happening and working in the real world. And when people have such success as to become a centimillionaire, you know that there are strategies that they're using. There are things that they're doing that are different. It's not luck. It's not just falling into something. It's a matter of decision, and it's a matter of very deliberate work toward a goal and some very powerful strategies to get them there. So listening to this interview, I think you'll probably want to go back and listen again. And also there were some books that Richard mentioned that I will provide links on my website to those books, because I think all of them that Richard mentioned, you're going to want to read, because these are very, very powerful books. Thank you for listening to this episode. And I'd love to have a review from you if you are so inclined and just go to our iTunes page or on Stitcher Radio and leave a rating and review. That's all for today. Until next time, live the good life and be wealthy and smart. Thank you for listening to Be Wealthy and Smart with Linda P. Jones. Share the wealth and tell your family and friends about the show. Check out our website, blog, and social media for more riches at www.bewealthyandsmart.com.